a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. It is once again time to engage in wrong thinking. I'm very happy to catch up with my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm good, and I was thinking we might style ourselves Brave Faces in a tribute to Braveheart. Remember that great movie with Mel Gibson? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I would and rather... now, instead of, try, instead of trying to free Scotland, we'll have to try to free America. I would much rather wear the blue and white face paint than, than the mask. So make a note to myself. Buy some face paint and uh, prepare to cry freedom every time I enter a I store. I wonder what the reaction would be if you were to go shopping wearing a kilt and the blue and white face paint. <laughs> <laughs> you know, somewhere out there, I bet there is someone who's game. And if they do it, I you hope know, they'll send us pictures. Technically, it's a mask, correct? Right. So you can't argue with it. Look, I'm wearing a mask. It says no entry unless you're wearing a mask. Well, this is my mask. Yeah, and in fact, if you use the right to cosmetic mask, a cucumber mask or something, I mean, you might be doing <laughs> your face a favor. Huh? Absolutely. It's genius. It's inspired. I think I'm going to have to try it. That's a, that's an angle I had not considered, but I appreciate you bringing it up. You have to mention it makes the point, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. And you've you have had. I mean, look, every one of your articles is always worth my time. But you had one the other day about battling the Gesundheit Führers. That uh, it was so good. A friend actually sent it to me last night. Hey, have you seen this? And and uh, I want to talk about that article. Sure. And and I want people to understand that. Uh, whether they want to accept it or not, we're standing at a crossroads right now. And this is what you address in that particular column. Well, yeah, that's right. We're, well, we're, when I say we're, it's not just individuals. It's also specifically businesses are trying their very best as they see it to preserve their business by going along with all of these decrees. But I think what they fail to understand is that each inch of ground they seed leads to the next foot of ground that they're going to seed. And the time has come to stand up to this, both on an individual level uh, and as far as businesses are concerned, and I cite a couple of examples. The the two that I think are, are the most prominent and well known um, are the, uh, the the case of the the gym owner up in New York, um, who, along with some of the people who work out there, actually pushed back the Gesundheitsführers and just shouted them down and got them to leave the gym after they showed up to try to shut him down for daring to show his face and daring to let people come in to work out. Uh, there's another one, I think, in Orlando, Florida, um, uh, the owner of a sandwich shop. I think she makes grilled cheese sandwiches. Uh, brazenly refuses to uh, force anybody within, including her own employees, to wear the face diaper. And uh, they have not yet hut, hut, hutted her. And these sort of things uh, give courage and strength, I think, for more acts of resistance, just like us on an individual level showing our faces in public also gets the point across. And I think it's time for us to start doing this. Now, when, when we use the language of, okay, we're going to battle, you know, the Gesundheit Führers, for some people it's like, well, you sound so militant about this. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about uh, militancy, because right now the, the greatest militancy I see tends to be on the part of people who feel like it is their prerogative to impose what they feel is best for others on the rest of us. Well, that's just it. Everything is reversed, isn't it? We're militant for simply wanting to be left alone, whereas their militant desire to 
force everyone else to abide by whatever they believe uh, is the proper way to go about living, somehow that's okay. It's this, it's this just very strange way that words and meanings are inverted to mean they're opposite. You, you can look at so many examples of this in popular, in popular conversation, everything from uh, uh, contributing to Social Security and being a customer of the DMV. They try to put it in this passive, soft language to kind of euphemize the force and threats that are behind all of these things. No, I, I hear you. It's, uh, it's very disturbing, but at the same time, I feel like I have a duty, and anybody else who understands just how precious our liberties are has a duty to stand up and be counted, even if it's uncomfortable or maybe even a bit dangerous. Yeah, and I have gone out of my way when I go to a, a place that does not uh, act as the adjunct of the government and impose these, these mandates on people. For example, I, I, go to a, I found a little barbecue place that uh, just, you know, business as usual. You can walk in there. Without uh, playing sickness kabuki, you can get your stuff, you can sit down and have a meal, and I think it's very important to say something to the owner if he's there, or even the person who's behind the counter and say, look, I really appreciate the way you're, you're handling yourself. And if you happen to know anybody on a more personal level who runs a business, you might consider uh, telling them, that, look, if things get ugly, if things get tough, I'm willing to stand with you and, and get a group of people together who are willing to do what that, uh, that gym owner did up in New York and gather a crowd, because it makes it that much more uncomfortable for the Gesundheit's viewers to sick the sickness polizei uh, on a group of people who are just trying to live. Nobody's committing any crime here. It's absurd. The idea of Americans being uh, carted away in handcuffs and put into prisons because they're not playing sickness kabuki, it's outrageous. And I do think we can push back against that if we do it together and collectively. And it's funny because, you know, generally as a libertarian, I don't like collectivism, but when it's not coercive collectivism, it can be a good thing when we band together to act for a cause that's just. Absolutely. Now, one of the one of the best cases of this that I can think of, and some may disagree with me, is what happened at Bundy Ranch back in 2014. And, uh, you know, three years ago, I was sitting in the courtroom in Las Vegas as Cliven Bundy and his sons were on trial there for what happened at their ranch. And, you know, it looked like an open, and shut, an open and shut case. The government had everything they needed to put these guys away for multiple lifetimes in prison. But in the end, the case was dismissed because it turned out that the government had been the aggressor. The government had lied and had, had falsified information and withheld information. And what turned the tide there and what kept that from becoming a Waco was the fact that people showed up voluntarily to stand up for their neighbors. Some of them didn't even care about cattle. They didn't even care about, you know, the Bureau of Land Management. What they saw was an American family that was under assault from an out-of-control government agency, and they showed up to, to defend them, and, and they successfully Absolutely. backed the government down. Absolutely. And, you know, I have been a great critic of law enforcement for a number of reasons. However, I don't think that most people who are involved in law enforcement are bad people. I think they're trying to do a good job, and I think we can leverage that. I mean, a good job, I meaning do the right thing. I don't think they're out to, to serve as the NKVD or the Gestapo of the American sickness police state. So if you can sort of use morality as a leverage uh, to get them to be in the position, the really uncomfortable, awkward position of, of having to commit aggression against their, their neighbors, people they know, people who are trying to just run a business, who they know in their hearts are not criminals, are not doing anything wrong, I think you're going to begin to see mass defections among law enforcement. In fact, it's already happening. I, one of the counties that's adjacent to L.A., I think it might have been San Bernardino, 
um, the sheriff uh, brazenly, I, well, brazenly, I should say, law in a laudable manner, publicly said, uh, look, Governor Newsom, Gesundheitsführer, I'm not enforcing your tyrannical decrees. I'm not going to do it. Uh, my men aren't going to do it. We're, we're just not having any part of this. And, and he's not alone. There are a number of sheriffs all around the country who've said the same thing. So I have by no means given up hope. I think there are more good people in this country than there are bad. I think that just everybody's kind of terrified and hoping this will all blow over without a fight. But I think it's ultimately going to come down to a fight, and we need to be prepared for that. Not necessarily a physical one, but just standing up to and resisting what's, what they're trying to impose on us. I'll tell you what really spoke to me in your column on battling the Gesundheitsführers Führers, is you talked about how conformity is what allows that, uh, that uh, imposition of one-size-fits-all policy to yep. succeed. As long as we conform, yeah, they're going to have power over you. Take away your consent, though. Take away that conformity. You don't have to be violent to do so. You just refuse to go along with it. That's exactly right. And the, you know, the, the lesson that we all learned as kids, the schoolyard bully uh, thing, um, is essentially what we're dealing with here. You take a group of kids, and there's one, uh, one bully in the group. And that bully can lord it over a lot of the other kids as so long as the rest of the kids just want to conform. They don't want to raise a ruckus. They don't want to stand up. They don't want to say anything. But the minute one of them stands up to the bully, other ones start to stand up to the bully. And before you know it, the bully has lost his power. And that's the lesson that I think we need to relearn today and act on. There was something I saw earlier this week. It was a quote from uh, Mark Twain about uh, how one man can back down a lynch mob. And it just takes one person showing courage to, to take away that lynch mob's, you know, faux uh, authority and, and moral superiority. Uh, when one person stands up and says, this is wrong, the lynch mob almost invariably will back down. Yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenon of, of uh, mobs, that mobs are fundamentally cowardly. The individual submerges himself within the crowd and allows himself to be carried along by the frenzy of the crowd, which is inevitably driven uh, for good or ill by one or two people generally for a small cohort of leaders. So it's all about standing up and providing the proper example and, and saying no more when it comes to evil and terrible things that we must not tolerate, even if it means we get out of our comfort zone, even if it means we maybe put ourselves at a little bit of risk because everything is on the table. You know, to sacrifice everything for the sake of a little temporary safety, that's essentially what Ben Franklin said uh, 200 and something years ago, is a disastrously bad bargain to make. We'll be back with Eric Peters right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am visiting with Eric Peters from epautos.com. We get together about once a week and we talk about current events. And Eric, you provide some, uh, some mm -hmm. good insight and inspiration to people who are determined to remain free despite all the efforts uh, to the contrary by people who think they know what's best for us. What to get well, you... I hope so. <laughs> if, I wonder... if I didn't, I think I'd probably give up and just go live in a tent in the woods. Uh, man, I'll tell you, some of the stuff that I see lining up in front of us, uh, for instance, last night I saw a map of the states that have, have signed amicus briefs to join Texas's lawsuit or to, to lend support to Texas's lawsuit against, yeah. uh, what was it, four or five states that, uh, that had, shall we say, um, election irregularities. 
And I right. wanted to get your take on this Texas lawsuit because the mainstream media's uh, caution and, and mostly silence about this seems to indicate they've, they must be a little bit worried about it. Oh, I think they're very worried about it. And parenthetically, I don't think it's coincidental that the fear porn about the cases, the cases, has really ramped up over the last couple of weeks. Uh, coincidentally, at just the same time that uh, the election fraud story is beginning to get some traction, uh, not just traction amongst the hoi polloi and flyover country, but also with serious people, like the people like the Attorney General of Texas and these other states that are filing the briefs and getting involved in the litigation who are saying, look, something smells here. And if you're going to try to just steamroller us into accepting an election that's palpably fraudulent, you're essentially uh, saying that we're going to be run by an illegitimate, unelected government, and that's not acceptable and we won't tolerate it. And it's almost a pre-secessionary shot across the bow, if you will. Uh, And I think it's a really good thing. It's put them on notice, I hope, that uh, this has to be examined. This has to be looked at closely, and we need to find out what happened during the election before anybody is enthroned in January. No, I, I completely agree. It was it was a little uneasy for me to see that picture of the, the this map of the states, and and not because anybody's threatening you know to to fire on Fort Sumter, but as I looked at it, I kind of had this sense of whew, I'm getting kind of an 1860 vibe here. There's a separation sure. taking place. Well, people are are legitimately angry and legitimately frustrated. There are reasonable questions. Uh, that have yet to be answered, and I think, by and large, people are also enormously angry at this point about the way any any uh, non-orthodox statement is now being just completely suppressed, openly and brazenly, by these tech giants who are determined to tell everybody what they're going to think. I don't know if you caught it the other day, but YouTube, which is a um, uh, an affiliate or a partner or, or, or a, a subsidiary of Google, has decided that it will, uh, beginning yesterday, I think, no longer allow anybody to post videos uh, that contest the uh, the election results as uh, as decreed by MSNBC and CNN. Right, because we couldn't handle it if somebody were to suggest that maybe something there wasn't on the up and up. Right, right. So, and this is it's of a piece with all of the other acts of suppression and imposition that are going on all around this country, and I think people are getting tired of it. It's becoming potentially explosive. Uh, there are so many incongruities um, as far as what, what happened with the election that for Biden's own sake, if the, legit, if the election was legitimate, he should be at the forefront of people wanting this whole thing to be examined in the light of day so that he can say, look, it was a legitimate election. The votes were counted. I won. I'm the legitimate president of the United States, and most Americans, I think, uh, if that were the case, would say, okay, I don't agree with the guy, but the country elected him. He's the legitimate president. If, on the other hand, he just sort of forces his way in there, and there are questions, serious questions, and 80, 100 million people think that he's an illegitimate president, that is disastrous for the country. Yeah. I Look, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to be a realist. And I don't see any easy way out of this situation. The best I think we can hope for at this point is the the sides that are so diametrically opposed come to an agreement that, look, we we need to separate peacefully and then figure yeah. out a way to do it. I hope that happens, but historically, I don't think that's that's been the case. Unfortunately, I, I have to agree with you. I think you and I and probably most of the people on our side simply want to be let alone. We We don't have any desire to impose our way of life on anyone else. We just wish to be free to live our lives according to our own uh, lights. Whereas the people on the other side are not willing to accept that bargain, to accept any compromise. Uh, 
they're totalitarian in mindset. Everybody must live the way they want to live. And that's like being in a bad marriage where there's just no hope of coming together and compromising and having some kind of an equitable middle ground between the two parties. And at that point, you have to have a separation. And so the, the question becomes, how do we do that? And I don't have a good answer yet. I'm going to shift gears here. Uh, there's one other topic I wanted to touch on in the moments that we have left here. Um, your article that you had about another step towards cashless because of corona, um, mm-hmm. uh, specifically as this applies to our automotive freedoms, talk to me about how the cashless society is now uh, creeping into our automobiles. Well, it's been, it's been happening for some time. You know, they're, they're attempting to get rid of cash for a variety of reasons, chiefly because it eliminates anonymity and privacy, uh, if you have a transaction with cash, the only people who are party to that transaction are the people who are party to it. Now they want the government to be party to it, the corporations to be party to it. And the article that I wrote has to do with an attempt to uh, install within your car uh, an app that will um, make it feasible for you to get fuel without having to touch dirty money and without having to interact with anybody, you know, again, in the name of Corona. Of course, you'll still be touching the dirty pump and getting the corona that way, but let's put that aside for the moment. <laughs> but what they want to do is implicitly they want to track you at all times. So now your car knows where you are in relation to a gas pump, and it knows exactly how much fuel you bought. And then it automatically deducts money from your account. And you can see where this is headed. It's, it's sort of like the Chinese social credit thing where uh, your transactions now are sort of permissions that are granted to you by the government corporate nexus. And the minute you commit wrong think, like let's say you don't wear your face, your face diaper or uh, you're caught uh, outside somewhere uh, not wearing it well, all of a sudden they shut your ability to buy gas off uh, or they, 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 they freeze your, your ability to, to buy anything electronically. And that's what cashless means. It means digitized complete control over all economic activity. Yep. It's, I, I think it was uh, a writer by the name of Don McIlvaney, 25 years ago, was sounding the warnings about, hey, when people try to shepherd you into a cashless society, they are laying the foundation for what he called electronic fascism. And, and yeah. I know that sounds like, oh, that's just paranoia. You guys are just worried about something. But when you look at some of the ways that, uh, that we are being leveraged to do this or do that or else, it sure makes sense that that's, that's a tool that totalitarians would want to have in their hands. Yeah, and they're using the, the lure of convenience. Oh, it's so convenient. You know, you don't have to handle money anymore. It's just all automatic, kind of like the way they've been marketing people um, to, to get into having a cell phone, a smartphone. Uh, and now people are beginning to realize how these smartphones are insidious and, and how, how they're being used to track them and, 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 and keep up on what they're saying and what they're doing. And it's, it should alarm anybody. You know, I'm not an Luddite, I'm not anti-technology, but I'm very much concerned uh, about the way these technologies now are being used to systematically undermine the freedoms that Americans used to take for granted and which are now very much uh, under threat. And it's become very normalized to the point that we joke about it. I mean, I, one, one of the better jokes I've seen in the last few days is, you know, uh, if you want to drop a hint to your significant other what you want for Christmas, just go stand by their smartphone and loudly say whatever it is you want and watch the ads and pop up as, as they browse. Yeah, and it's true. It's true. It's funny, but it's not. You know, the idea that, that everything, that your preferences, your likes, your dislikes, it's not just about what brand of shoe you want to buy, your political thoughts 
um, and opinions are also being kept track of. And that's an ominous thing. The idea that you know you, what you happen to believe on, a, on an issue somehow is, is being looked at and monitored and recorded by some government or corporate entity out there to inevitably be used against you because it's not quite woke enough, let's say. Yeah, and, and I'm going to be spending some time later on in the program today talking about how uh, woke culture has, has incorporated or has taken over uh, corporate America. Eric, uh, let's give people a reason to go to your website. We've got about 30 seconds left. Tell them what they'll sure. find there. They'll find new, new car reviews. They'll find stuff about classic cars. They'll find stuff about the things you and I talk about, political things, libertarian philosophy, um, and, and pretty much anything uh, at all that anybody wants to talk about. Uh, including advice about car repair and maintenance and financing and buying and all of those various things. And anybody who has a question for me can click the little Ask Eric button, and I will do my best to get you an answer. Okay, that's epautos.com. Eric, have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you next week. Sounds great, Brian. Thanks. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. You know, one of the interesting things about political correctness is uh, watching its progression through American society. I know this may sound hard to believe, but uh, I'm telling you this from the viewpoint of someone who has been keeping a pretty close eye on uh, political correctness, which could more correctly be referred to as cultural Marxism. In other words, the imposition of a, a politically correct way of thinking, a dogmatic, uh, ideological-driven worldview. Um, I've watched this over the last 25 years, and it's gone from the point where you could, you could pretty much safely ignore political correctness simply by walking away from the person with weird-colored hair holding a sign chanting at you. That's, I mean, that's all it took. I mean, look, there were certain hotbeds of political correctness. The nation's college campuses were probably the most likely place you'd be able to encounter it. But for the most part, a person could go about their life without the fear of this coercive demand that you must think this way, you must speak this way, you must use these pronouns. And if you notice, it's, it's never good enough. It's never enough. And just as, as, as a way of showing you how political correctness works. It's based on the Marxist idea that there are exploiters and there are victims. And of course, the way that victims gain power is they claim victim status, which means everybody has to do what I say because I'm a victim. And I like the way uh, William S. Lind put it. I mean, this has been like 25 years ago that I remember reading about this. He said, political correctness is a crutch wielded by life's failures. That's some pretty harsh language on the one hand, but on the other hand, if you think about what they're trying to do, I think it applies. People who cannot convince others of the efficacy of their ideas, of the value of of what they have to offer, who have to coercively, either through guilt or, once they've captured levers of power, through the force of the state, force people to think a certain way, to believe a certain way, we must teach our children this is the right way. I mean, it's, it's not just about being polite. You want to live in a polite society? So do I. But it's not really a polite society if people are not free to choose to either be polite or not be polite to one another. 
That's a hard thing for people to understand, but that is what freedom looks like. And you know what? The vast majority of people, I mean an overwhelming majority of people, are really decent. They want to get along. We're not looking for reasons to go around and be a jerk to the people around us. But to the politically correct, not only do they believe, no, 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 everybody's a jerk until they do exactly as I tell them, but they actually believe they have this right to be a jerk or even beyond a jerk in order to impose their worldview on others. So for a while, you could ignore it. I mean, you could just watch it, walk away from the screechy, you know, feminist to, you know, see sexism in a toothpaste commercial. But more and more, we're finding that woke mentality has crept into corporate America. In fact, corporate America has embraced wokeness to a degree that, you know, if, if you work for a major corporation, it is a guarantee you have undergone some sort of sensitivity training. And sensitivity training is nothing more than Marxist group manipulation techniques. This is what you are supposed to believe. Oh, look, we brought in a facilitator who's here to uh, tell everybody, here's what you're supposed to believe. And one of the first things they do is they will sit down and try to pinpoint who in the crowd here is resistant to embracing this dogma. Who is, who's the heterodox that is not going to listen and, and, and obey what we tell them? And they find someone, and, and however mild that resistance may be, it may be just like, yeah, well, I'm really not interested in that. Well, once they have pinpointed somebody who isn't on board, boom, there's the target. And the whole goal of the facilitator in the classic Marxist crowd manipulation techniques is to pit the crowd against them and through peer pressure and through increasing social pressure, get them to acquiesce, get them to kneel before the altar of political correctness. You see why I'm saying this This isn't just about, it's just manners, it's just being nice to people and being inclusive. No, it's about forcing a worldview on people, whether they want it or not. And I don't have that right to do that to you. You certainly don't have the right to do that to me. And what's worse is it, it leaves out the reality here, or it ignores the reality, that it's perfectly possible for us to disagree on things. Even fundamental questions about what is life, what is justice, what is, you know, perfection. We can disagree on those things and still get along. Political correctness allows none of that. You will toe the party line or you will be punished. And in our day, canceled. As cancel culture is now a big part of it. Well, there's a, there's a new twist on the corporate wokeness. Gary Gallas, writing for, I believe it's the... Uh, Foundation for Economic Education, points out that uh, the latest attempt to advance diversity through coercion is NASDAQ's diversity initiative. And in particular, here's what they're, they're saying. NASDAQ is proposing requirements that any board must have at least one woman and one minority or LGBTQ director in order for their company to be listed. If you want to be on the NASDAQ, you have to have this much diversity. You must be this diverse <laughs> to ride this ride. Now, this is not something new. And Gary Gallas points out it follows on the heels of California's new mandatory diversity standards for companies headquartered there. The justification, as Michael Hiltzik wrote about such requirements, is that these companies plainly recognize diverse boards are good for their bottom line. In fact, in fact, Hiltzik termed the New York Stock Exchange less coercive approach 
which was creating an advisory council aimed at connecting diverse candidates with companies seeking new directors as pretty thin gruel, clearly not up to snuff on the diversity bandwagon. Now, Gary Gellis says that comparison is bothersome for anyone who believes in liberty because the NASDAQ rule, as well as California's new requirement, would still be coercive, while the New York Stock Exchange approach would not be. In other words, the former forces a form of diversity on firms who may not agree that it would be good for their bottom line, given the circumstances they face, while the latter doesn't coerce those firms. He says the proposed NASDAQ rule and others that share its coercive nature reflects America's often loud discussions that proceed as if diversity was the relevant and desired, period. However, picking at least one member from each of the particular designated groups is a weird form of diversity. The member chosen will almost certainly be a member of the elite because they're closer to the skill and experience set that the board is looking for. But choosing a diversity member who's from the elite does little to expand the diversity of views beyond that of the elite. And that does little to guarantee the interests of others in those groups are either incorporated or advanced, even though diversity rhetoric presumes that will be the case. Gary Gallus says, look, he's an illustration. He's a white, actually formerly freckled, now turning pinkish male. But as a libertarian, he says, I would not advance the interests of my group against those of others because I believe in everyone's self-ownership and the derived requirement for relationships to be voluntary. He says there's also the all-but-ignored question of whether the form of diversity chosen for others expands our joint possibilities or contracts them. Our joint possibilities are expanded by voluntary diversity. But involuntary diversity can increase social balkanization. Let me put that in, in, in plain language that I understand. When you force people to associate, you actually create division simply because you are forcing them. And that undermines the asserted goal of we're just trying to promote diversity. Gary Gallus says when members of one group are pitted against other groups in a zero or negative sum game, one more directorship for us is one less for you, as also illustrated by the current infighting of diversity groups over who should be given which places in the coming administration. You see how diversity can easily increase divisiveness? In fact, he says such divisive diversity tends not only to divert our focus away from the greatest engine humanity has discovered for turning diversity into mutual benefits, that would be free markets, but it also undermines it. Free markets, which depend on people's freedom to make voluntary arrangements, turn diversity into widespread shared gains, facilitating social cooperation, while coerced diversity relies on imposing harms, crowding out social cooperation possibilities. Look, the bottom line is, Individuals have diverse tastes, backgrounds, cultures, experiences, circumstances, etc. And all those differences can produce disagreements about the values of goods and services. Market exchange, however, allows all to benefit from those differences. The reason is that voluntary trade provides benefits that exceed costs to both parties. Thus, divergent values that arise from uncountable differences lead to exchanges that create wealth for all involved. Everyone gains from their diversity, with no one's desires ignored or overridden simply because they're different in some way. Now, in contrast, coercively imposed diversity benefits whichever group can politically dominate by imposing burdens on others. I'm going to come back to this in a few moments, but does this make sense? Can you see why it has to be freely chosen in order for it to be something that's actually worth your time? But for people 
who, who just think, well, the ends justifies the means. There's no degree of tyranny they're not willing to embrace to make sure that people are towing their line. Why? Well, because presumably in their minds, they know what's best for the rest of us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. By the way, I want you to check out my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is where you'll find this excellent article by Gary M. Gallus from the Foundation for Economic Education. Why NASDAQ's attempt to advance diversity through coercion is the wrong way to go. I, to me, this is just common sense. But then again, I don't have an axe to grind because I'm really not looking to gain control over other people. And frankly, I, I mean, I push back when someone is trying to gain control over me, whether it's through fear or intimidation. Um, I don't know what it is. Maybe I just have a rebellious nature, but boy, I push back. You're not going to do that. Treat me well, I will treat you better. Treat me bad, well, I'm liable to treat you worse. And I don't really like to be that way. But I don't like to be backed into a corner either. So, please, consider that fair warning. That respect thing, it's a two-way street. Gary Gallus says, look, individuals have diverse skills, abilities, prior investments, traditions, climates, etc. that lead to very different production costs across people and places. Consequently, specialization in production for exchange with others can dramatically lower costs and increase our capabilities to supply what people want, further expanding mutual gains from diversity. But coercive diversity, like mandating the growing of particular crops where the climactic uh, conditions are unsuitable, undermines those gains. He says places where different ideas and customs have come into voluntary contact have always been primary sources of new and better ways to do things. Could what they do work better for me than what I'm doing now? That motivates communication, evaluation, application, imitation, and modification that turn diversity into benefits for others. That's why trade hubs, particularly ports, have always been centers of entrepreneurship and advance, and why cities have been the incubators for vast amounts of innovation, which no one could impose from without. He says coercively increasing the separateness of groups and the distrust between them, however, undermines this highly productive, creative interaction. Free market arrangements also produce mutual benefits from dynamic change. Our diversities of time, place, and circumstance mean that some of us learn new productive information that others don't yet know. And when when such discoverers act on that information in markets, like buying more of a good discovered to soon be of greater value, they communicate the resulting changes in relative scarcities faster and more accurately than any other social communication mechanism. Consequently, fewer mistakes are made, and that benefits all. However, anything that increases group separatism and distrust rather than openness to peaceful relationships depreciates incentives to seek out such information or productively communicate it to others. Look, he says, diversity among individuals is a fact But whether it's a social benefit, in fact, depends upon whether that fact is used to create excuses to fight each other for special treatment or offers members mutual benefits. Recent efforts have focused on solutions representing the former, 
overlooking that, as Dwight Lee put it, politicizing our differences is far more likely to make diversity a source of conflict than a cause of celebration. Yeah, I think we've seen that play out right in front of our eyes. Americans would do better by focusing instead on advancing voluntary arrangements, which allow all to peacefully advance their ends even when they differ. At the end of Hiltzik's article, he calls the NASDAQ proposal a step forward in a direction that the American business has been moving toward on its own. But an extra push cannot hurt a good cause. But Gary Gallus says, however, if businesses are in the process of adjusting in the desired direction without coercion, it's hard to see why coercion would be necessary now. And by the way, he says that second statement is false. The extra push he and many others endorse, threatens to convert voluntary diversity into involuntary diversity, which would undermine the primary means we have not just to, to not just live with, but benefit greatly from diversity. That's one of the best pieces of thinking I've come across, and I, I see a lot of good stuff on any given day. Again, you'll find it at the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Please check it out. And if you are so inclined, share it with others. Let other people know about the show, too. All right, on a similar note, one of the newest moral imperatives these days is a thing called socially responsible investing. And John Stossel has a very enlightening breakdown of the folks who are promising environmental absolution in return for your money. He says, don't believe the hype about socially responsible investing. Stossel says, you want to make money and help the world, too? Wall Street says you can. If you invest in, quote, socially responsible funds, say big investment funds like BlackRock or Parnassus, TIAA, CREF, etc., then they'll do good things for the world and your retirement funds will grow. Now, these funds obsess about what they call environmental, social, and governance factors. For example, Parnassus says it picks investments based on their environmental impact, how they treat their employees, the quality of their relationships with local communities. And people believe. Stossel says more than $100 billion poured in just in the first half of this year. But he says, I won't invest. And there's a link there to his new video, which explains why. He says one popular socially responsible fund, Generation Investments, is run by former Vice President Al Gore. His website claims they invest in, quote, sustainable Companies that do things consistent with a low-carbon, prosperous, equitable, healthy, and safe society. If you don't invest, Gore warns, you'll miss out on the single largest investment opportunity in all of history. He says sustainability can actually enhance returns. And John Stossel points out, yeah, they do. They enhance his returns. The management fees help him pay for his many homes. Now, ESG funds probably won't do as much for you if you invest. Thomas Hogan is a senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. He says, I've had a lot of experience looking at these types of investments. They don't actually accomplish the goals of being environmentally or socially responsible. Al Gore's Generations Investments, for example. They're not really making socially conscious investments, says Hogan. Their number one holding is Alphabet parent company, is Alphabet rather, parent company of Google. So they're basically just buying regular companies. So why do people invest? Well, Hogan says it makes people feel good. Some green investment funds did well lately because oil prices dropped, but most will give you lower returns because they charge higher fees. A Pacific Research Institute report found that their fees average 0.7% per year, which meant over 10 years, 
the green portfolio was worth about 40% less than what you would have gained had you bought an S&P 500 index fund. On top of that, what Wall Street calls sustainable or social impact investing is often just marketing. Parnassus brags that it owns U.S. foods and Clorox. Well, what's special about them? Parnassus says food and cleaning supplies help meet U.N. sustainability goals like nutrition and sanitation. To which John Stossel says, give me a break. U.S. foods and Clorox make good products, but there's nothing uniquely responsible about them. The Boston Trust Walden ESG Impact Report brags about its activism as if lobbying for bigger government helped the world. They promote their lobbying for the Paris Climate Accord and for tougher workplace regulations in Bangladesh. Do they not know that tougher regulations make employment more costly, leaving more people more desperate? BlackRock's socially aware fund brags that it gives you 2.62% more exposure to gender-diverse boards. 2.6%? So what? Their environmentally aware fund also invests in Chevron and Exxon. He says he asked BlackRock about these examples, but he says they never got back to us with an answer. Worse, some of today's environmentally responsible funds probably harm the environment. For example, most green funds wouldn't invest in the Keystone Pipeline, but pipelines are much better for the environment than the alternative, which is hauling oil by train and truck. Some green investors oppose fracking, but the United States led all countries in reducing carbon emissions, mostly because fracking's natural gas reduces demand for coal and high-carbon oil. So the ugly truth is that most so-called responsible investment funds charge more to sell feel-good nonsense that accomplishes nothing. guess it's the equivalent of environmental snake oil. Instead, suggests Hogan, invest in any company that produces things people want. All those companies create a lot of value for society. John Stossel says they do. And he says, I save money by investing in passive investment funds and exchange-traded funds that don't charge fat fees. They grow our economy without misleading people about sustainability or enriching Al Gore. It would totally be worth your time to check out this article, which again, you'll find at the com. It's in the show notes for December 10th. And there are a couple of videos linked within that video that I would, within that story rather, that I would encourage you, take the time to watch. Stossel is a master at putting a lot of information into an easily understandable format and within a limited amount of time. He's been doing it for years, and frankly, the guy makes a lot of sense. All right, thanks again for joining us today. Glad you could be part of our growing audience. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please go ahead and sign up for it. And please consider becoming a regular monthly donor to help support this program. Every dollar you donate allows me to focus on providing the best possible content to you and my other listeners. And I thank you in advance. This is The Brian Hyde Show.